Okay, so just so you're aware, this is an announcement, uh, just so you're aware, I'm interrupting the uh, teaching through John to deal with an item that I think is of value just because of the number of things that are occurring uh, about conflict resolution. There are several of you that I'm working through various conflicts with that are either, you know, uh, with um, other individuals in the congregation or people in other congregations or you know, that I'm engaged in discussions with other church governments trying to deal with things. And so because of the various providential things that are occurring, um, you're all going to feel like I'm talking about you. And I am. And so I want you to know that I'm thinking only of you as I talk about this. And so the only person that I'm thinking about is the one who's thinking I'm talking about them. Uh, so the, just so you're aware. So a number of you will feel like I'm talking about you. And I am. I'm talking about myself, too. Uh, I'm talking about the need for conflict resolution. And so um, here's the other thing is the, the, this is, I started to work on this last night, started to organize it, and I realized it needed to be multi-part. Um, and I think right here I have, I guess, nine pages. The notes I pulled together were at 22 pages um, to realize that it needed to be broken up. It will become longer, I'm sure, because some of the later stages of how you think about conflict resolution become a little bit more complex. Um, we'll be talking about Matthew 18, which has first to do with private resolution of conflicts, then it has to do with how you meet with others, and then it has to do with the church portion. And the church portion is very complex, and it's rarely taught on. And so I want to teach on the church portion, but that will probably take a lesson in and of itself. And then there is also just sort of dealing with the exceptions, which is something that next time we'll be focused on. And so my goal in this one will be to talk about um, how, how we deal with conflict generally and the general goals. And I'll be focusing on the Ninth Commandment. So there's attitudinal things and goal-oriented things. And all of us will feel conviction. I felt conviction of sin as I was going through this, right? I was looking at that. So that's going to be something that we, we look at. So I just I wanted to give that as a preface before we start the worship you understand why I'm doing that. And Mr. Schaefer, when you're editing this, if you could take this announcement portion and just add this to the front of the sermon itself so people are aware as they come in. Um, so anyways, um, the other announcements, we're going to sing Psalm 1, and we're going to sing Psalm 133. Psalm 1 is about meditating on the law, and conflict resolution is a complex law process. Um, and so meditating on the law helps us to have peace and to resolve conflicts. Secondly, um, I want us to sing Psalm 133 because it's the one that's about the idea of unity between brothers and the value of that. And that doesn't mean unity at any cost. That means unity when it is done in the truth is valuable. And so that's um, what that's about. So we're going to uh, be continuing in the reading. And I think, Mr. Schaefer, you're reading Genesis 11 today. Okay, Genesis 11. Psalm 1 and 133, and um, that's everything. Okay. Okay, so first of all, uh, on page 1, I have principles of conflict resolution that are organized for various key parts. This is sort of the grammar of conflict resolution. These are the things that, if you understand these or have these things memorized, it helps you to deal with the various components in a way that's faster, easier, and gives you a place to go. Now, um, I have taken the four G's of a conflict resolution, the seven A's, and the four promises of forgiveness from Ken Sandy. Uh, he wrote a book called, uh, 
But he's resolving everyday conflict, but he has a longer one that I can't remember. But resolving everyday conflict is one of the little booklets that's a summarized version of this stuff. There were some ways I didn't like the way he worded a few things, and so I have modification here, and I've added some additional information, including the acceptable conclusions. So I am building off of that, so it's sort of a synthesis of my own work and his work. Um, and so Ken Sandy, Resolving Everyday Conflict. There's a more famous book he wrote that's the one he, Peacemaker, Peacemaker's the name of it. Peacemaker is the name of the book. That's the one that's the more famous one. It's longer. Okay. So, um, okay. So, first, the four G's of conflict resolution. It's important to remember that any conflict that we've got, the principal goal has to be the glory of God. Okay. So, why do we do with this? Because we want to live our lives in a manner that glorifies God, and working to glorify God is working to see God known and to cause us to be a part of that, right? We want to know him more fully, and we want to see others know him more fully. And so conflict resolution is a part of the process by which we have a greater knowledge of God and by which we see others have a greater knowledge of God. And that includes witnesses, because people are aware of conflicts between Christians more than conflicts between others because of the fact that we have special claims on being a special people that's separate from the world. When we have conflict and we deal with it badly, People like to disparage the church, and when we have conflict and we deal with it well, the result is that people are able to see that there is something powerful about the gospel and also about the law of God that helps us to be able to do things more wisely and better. So the goal is the glory of God. And that helps us to think about not just pursuing whatever my own desire is, whatever my own self-interest is, whatever my fleshly desire might be. And so a lot of the times there's difficult things where you go, I'd prefer to not deal with this, but because you care about the glory of God, you're going to deal with some of those things. You're going to go and engage in difficult conversations. You might bring something up, or you're willing to deal with conflict and to talk to people at length in order to see actual resolution. Not because you're thinking it's going to be worth it in terms of the dollars and cents, or because you're going to get enough earthly pleasure out of it, but because of the fact that you think that this is worth it in terms of the purpose of life, which is to glorify God. So in order to maximize the ability to glorify God, what we have to do is we have to be honest in assessing ourselves and honest in assessing the other party, which means what we need to do is if we have an offense we first want to examine whether the offense is from the law of God or whether it's something that we're just offended about because of preferences. And so preference offenses are a thing that we need to be careful, that we don't take preferences and simply impose them on other people. And so what we want to do is to make sure if we're bringing an offense that we have a basis in the law of God. So that's, we want to examine that. And when we look at ourselves, we don't want to examine ourselves just based upon if we feel good about how we're doing things. What we want to do is to examine ourselves on the basis of the law of God. And so when we're looking at the law of God in a conflict, we need to apply it to the other party, and we need to apply it to ourselves. And so in applying it that way, we can have the same tools for both directions. So the beginning of, uh, of this, this next G is getting a log out. So the idea, Jesus talks about how you can't really very effectively take specks out of your neighbor's eye if you have a giant beam or log sticking out of your own eye. And so there's this need to examine yourself and to you know, heal yourself, physician, right, is the idea. And once you've got that out, once you've got the log out of your own eye, you're much more able to see the failures of others. 
Now, this can be abused as a defense. It can be said that basically you just go, well, because you have sin in general, therefore you cannot bring an accusation. And so counter-accusations can be a mechanism to slow things down and to prevent things from moving forward. So there's a danger of, of somebody else just kind of throwing counter-charges out, which is one of the reasons why it's important that we start by showing ourselves to be um, examining ourselves with honesty, by looking for places where we have failed towards the other person in the existing conflict. Then, uh, gentle, gentle rebuke. So there we are telling the other person what they've done wrong. We're saying from the law of God what we think they've done wrong, and we are telling them you know, what event we saw or, or what external thing made us believe that there was a breaking of that law and what the positive duty would have been to do instead. And so we're using the law of God to communicate that. So this is the thing that we think the other party has done wrong. Now, here's the thing. In doing step two, we don't want to make stuff up. Okay? You don't want to just look for, hey, I need something to apologize for in step two so that people will think that I'm examining myself. That would be hypocrisy. Okay? That would be hypocrisy. So you don't want to apologize for things that you don't believe that you have done. You only want to apologize for things you actually think you've done. And you don't want to just look at the inner recesses of your heart for any bad thoughts you may have had. It's not useful to tell people, you know, the other day when you were talking, I was thinking that you were really ugly, and that was not a helpful thing. And so I am sorry for thinking that you were so ugly. I mean, you are, but it was not a helpful thing for me to think about. And so that is not a helpful thing to do. You don't look for things that were merely thought sins and then say, hey, in order to deal with this conflict, I wanted to let you know these bad thoughts I had about you. Okay? Not helpful. What you're doing is you're looking for external things that you have said or done or neglected to do or say that were offenses, that are objectively offenses. And then you want to apologize for those and only if you're confident they are actually violations of the law of God. So, sometimes we are blameless in a conflict. I'm not sure that I could name one where I have been blameless, where I have had no failings along the way, but I imagine there may have been one. And it is possible for a person to blamelessly deal with a conflict. Not sinlessly. They're not, not all their inward thoughts are going to be perfect during the whole thing. They're going to have sinful thoughts. But they might blamelessly, in the externals, avoid causing objective offense. And so, getting the log out, it's important to examine that properly. It's also important to not make stuff up. And the gentle rebuke is the same. We need to be careful to only lay out rebukes that we could demonstrate are sins from the law of God. And we cannot read people's hearts. All we can do is deal with the externals of what is said and what is done. So what we do, if there is a concern, because some externals are ambiguous, right? Some of them are things where you might have uh, something where it could be sin if one motive was the, the reason, or it could not be. And so in those cases, what we're doing is we need to, if we're concerned because it, there's this repeated process of kind of ambiguous things that you think are being confusing about what is right and what is wrong, then you should go and ask them, okay, what's going on here? You're doing this thing, it looks like it could be this, and talk to me about this. What, what do you mean to be going on here? I'm worried about it in this way. So, so you're sort of like asking, you're going to inquire about what is going on, and you're asking for the explanation. Sometimes the explanation makes it so that we just all of a sudden see something that we just weren't seeing, right? And other times, the explanation still raises other questions and results in a further discussion. 
But, but it's important to go in and try to understand. And the asking should not be this sort of annoying asking of questions without getting to your point. Okay? You don't want to just ask, 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 and not explain the concern. What you want to do is you want to go and be straightforward. You want to be candid. And you want to say, I'm concerned about this. It looks like this. Okay? And, and I, can you talk to me about it? Because I want to think the best. I want to, I want to understand. But this is, this is my concern. Okay? So you tell them plainly what the concern is. And then you also are asking them to explain. You're not saying that you're certain when you're not. There's other times when something is obviously sin. There are other times when things are obviously sin. And in those cases, you just plainly come with a rebuke. Now, if someone gives you an explanation and you just didn't realize there's a way to interpret it another way, okay, you can accept that explanation. But you, you, you try to be plain and candid about whether you think something is plainly sin or whether you're concerned. And so we should be careful about not assuming something is plainly sin when it is not. And what you want to do is you think about, if I were dealing with the same sort of thing, if I were in their situation, how might I be thinking about this? Okay, that's a helpful way of considering how somebody would apply the law of God in different situations. And if you can't really think about a way where something that you're seeing would be acceptable, that's plainly sin, at least to you. And so bringing it forward as plainly sin is the prudent thing to do in that case while being careful to hear out a defense if it's offered. Then fourthly, going and being reconciled. So the goal of admitting your faults and rebuking others for their faults is to have everybody agree and to understand what they need to do to resolve it so that then there can be reconciliation, so that you can have a sharing in the good communion of the things of God, a communion of the saints, working together in fellowship and rejoicing together. And so you can have the beauty of the unity of the brotherhood. Now, one of the things that's necessary when a wrong is committed, when a wrong is committed, it is necessary that the person who is in the wrong be willing to give a biblical apology. A biblical apology or biblical repentance, there's the seven A's, which is helpful, and I have explanations to avoid misinterpretation. But, but first, you want to address all of the parties involved. So if there's multiple people involved in the conflict, the apology needs to be heard by all of them. The, the, the resolution of a conflict needs to be as public as those who are aware of the conflict. The resolution of the conflict needs to be as public as those who are aware of the conflict. Second, an apology needs to be unambiguous. It needs to avoid weasel words. You have all heard politicians apologize, and you might be thinking, I wonder if their mother never taught them how to apologize, because it seems like all of their apologies are, if I offended you, then I am sorry about that, but I don't think I did anything wrong, and maybe I could think about how to do something better in the future to deal with the fact that you are such a dum-dum. Right? That's sort of the apology that you hear, and that is an insincere apology filled with weasel words, and it is something that shows that there's not a real repentance. Then, what are the things that are supposed to be done? There are five things that need to be done in an apology. One, there needs to be an admission of particular wrongs. In other words, I broke the law of God this way. I broke the law of God this way. You're specifically referring to the law of God and the sin that you committed. Secondly, you acknowledge harms that were caused. So if I steal your car and I wrap it around a telephone pole, 
then the harms are I may have caused you to be late for work, and I might have caused you the economic harms of the car being destroyed. And so what I need to do is to recognize that those are harms that were caused. This is important because if you don't acknowledge harms that are caused, you're also not going to understand or accept the consequences that come from that. And so being able to accept the consequences is important. So consequences refers to things like the lawful penalties that crimes have assigned to them in the word of God. For example, if there is uh, theft or fraud, there is this idea of the need to have repayment in full of the value plus some multiple. And that multiple is dependent upon the grievousness of the type of theft and how far along the person got into it. So you can look at the case laws to understand that. Um, consequences for murder would be execution, uh, things like that. So we have various, uh, various places where if you have committed a particular wrong and there are harms that are caused, there are also associated consequences. And those consequences are often in part dependent upon the actual harms that it resulted. There has to be a commitment to alter behavior. So you're saying, I'm going to stop doing this bad stuff and I'm going to start doing this good stuff. That's the commitment to alter. So you don't wait to forgive until the person has altered all their behavior. They don't have to get everything perfectly in order. They have to make a commitment. Once they start to do stuff that's contrary to the commitment, that can be a basis for the removal of forgiveness that's granted. But you forgive at the time of the commitment. And then what you're doing is you're working through the process of, of what those consequences are, and the forgiveness can be removed. Okay? This is sometimes we... In evangelical circles, we kind of pretend sometimes like granting forgiveness is this irrevocable thing that makes it so that it's sort of like, ah, got you. You said forgive, and therefore you've forgiven me, and now you just you can't, you can't bring it up. You can't deal with it. And the answer is no. If you break your commitment to alter your behavior, there's a basis to bring it back up. So this is not a uh, gotcha game on the granting of forgiveness. Furthermore, forgiveness should not be extended without repentance. Forgiveness should not be extended without repentance. Now, forgiveness is different from overlooking. Okay, we'll talk about overlooking. Overlooking is there are minor faults that are private or minor failings, and those things can be overlooked, and we'll talk about those later. But um, right now, if we're dealing with a sin that cannot be overlooked, um, either because it is major or because you personally are having difficulty overlooking it, then you have to deal with the resolution of the conflict. Now, the last thing after the promise to alter commitment, sorry, alter behavior, commitment to alter behavior, is also the asking for forgiveness. So those are the steps there. That's what needs to be done. And this all needs to be done at the level of publicity of the conflict. So when a person is forgiven, forgiveness implies these four promises, whether they are explicitly stated or not. And in fact, I, I don't advise in most cases explicitly stating all of these promises. I just need you, and we all need to, understand that these are implicit in the forgiveness. Now, I'll tell you what. If somebody's having a hard time getting over their guilt, sometimes a way you can minister the, to them as a fellow saint is by reminding them of what your forgiveness means. And that can be a very powerful statement. That can be a very powerful thing. So you can tell them, look, I've forgiven you, which means this this, this, right? So you go through that. That can be a powerful thing to help the other person if the other person, after they have repented, 
and maybe there's some time going, you can remind them of that. If people keep re-apologizing because they feel the guilt of something, this can be also a powerful way to minister to them and to be a powerful way of talking to them about the forgiveness that the law of God teaches us in the gospel as the new administration of the covenant of grace. All right, so here are the four promises. I will restore our fellowship as brothers in Christ. Um, and you might also restore relationships in other institutions, if appropriate. Sometimes, for example, I as a minister of the gospel, you know, there are some sins that you forgive me and you would go back to treating me like a minister. There are other sins where you might forgive me and treat me as a brother, and then you also need to remove me from office. Okay, so that removes one of the relationships. That would remove a relationship of, 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 of officer and congregant. Okay, we would now just be brothers. Okay, so, but you might. There are some sins where you have to remove me, and there are some sins where you would have to forgive me and to restore our relationship not only as brothers, but also as congregant and officer. So, uh, I will restore our fellowship as brothers in Christ, and I will not allow this issue to prevent us from doing our duties to each other. So you, you go back to doing your duties according to your station as things have been restored. So that's a powerful thing as opposed to just a permanent alienation. Two, I will not dwell on this incident without a duty to do so. So that means you're not going to, you know, it's already been resolved. There's been rebuke. There's been apology, biblical apology, repentance. There has been a restoration. So I'm not going to sit around thinking about this thing as a thing to be bitter about, right? That's bitterness is dangerous. It's happiness destroying. And so sitting around and thinking about the negatives is really destructive. And it furthermore results in bad fruit because it's going gonna, it's gonna to cause us to, number three, bring this up against others unjustly. Okay, so what we promise to do is to not bring up the incident against others without a duty to do so. So uh, one, one reason you might have to think about it again is if the person is recurring in the sin or the sin pattern that's being restored. And you might have to bring it up to others who are involved um, or to bring it up to that person. And so, you know, if somebody has repented, has been forgiven, and is not continuing in something, one of the ways you can hurt somebody in an argument is by bringing back up something in the past, right? So you go, hey, okay, we're arguing about this new thing, and you go, well, I'll tell you what, you did this, and that is a way of hurting somebody else. That's not helpful for resolving the conflict. That's provoking. So you do not bring up past things to the person themselves without a duty to do so. Like, this is a, a, a continuation. This thing you repented of, you're, you're doing it again. Or this is related to this. You could be wrong about that, but you need to be careful to do that with a, a proper intention for the glory of God and for the good of the other person. Fourthly, I will not bring this up again to others without a duty to do so. So you don't keep exposing, right? There's this idea that when there's not a reason, there's not a duty, what you try to do is your goal is to cover the failings of others unless there's a duty to expose it, okay? So you try to cover unless there's a duty to expose it. Ongoing is a, a, a ongoing sin and a refusal to repent uh, and, and not following process, that would be a reason to expose. Okay, so... You start a conflict, right? You, you, maybe you're the person who's caused offense, or maybe you're a person who is offended and you feel the need to engage on the offense. So first, you think about that. Something happens, it stings. You're offended. One, 
you could choose to interpret that ambiguity in a charitable way. So charitable interpretation is, here's a thing that could be evil or it could not be evil, depending on some details, especially what the person was intending by it. Okay? And so you, how you interpret that, you can either interpret it in a negative way or a positive way. And if you interpret it in the negative way, then you could be unjustly assuming the worst, or you could be on a reasonable basis <coughs> interpreting it as the negative thing. And if that's the case, and there's still some ambiguity, you need to go inquiring. Okay? If something is not ambiguous and it's plainly sin, then you simply bring the matter and say, I saw this, this looks like this, and I think you need to repent. Right? That's, you don't need to have to think. The I think is a, is a backing off. Right? That's, a, that's a weakening statement. There are times when you're not sure, but if you're confident, you need to say, this is a violation of the law, you should repent. Right? That, that is something where if it's plain, if it's obvious. So one obvious thing would be somebody blasphemes the name of God. There's no... There's no misunderstanding when somebody just uses the Lord's name in a way that is dishonoring. There are times when somebody can very plainly and obviously just take God's name and use it in a dishonoring way. When somebody praises a false God, that would be an example of that. Right? These, these are obvious examples of that. So, how you interpret a matter and whether it's ambiguous or not. Secondly, so you can choose to interpret something in a charitable way, and that's simply the end of it. Repetitions of something could cause you to remember those and start to be concerned and want to go clarify. Two, you can choose to overlook things that you think are clear but minor offenses. So a minor offense is something that doesn't harm others in a direct way, and is not a gross or you know, obvious manifestation of breaking the law. It's not a criminal manifestation. Um, it is maybe also not something that's a recurring, cankered, sinful habit, but is some expression of some weakness um, and that that person, uh, you're seeing it as not being the biggest thing going on. So you might overlook it so that you can deal with bigger problems or more basic problems. Okay, you, you might overlook it so you can deal with bigger problems or more basic problems. Um, three, choosing to accept a just defense resulting in charitable interpretation. So sometimes we bring a matter, the person offers a defense, and we are persuaded by their defense. When that happens, you then are changing your interpretation from negative to positive. So now you have a charitable interpretation. And so you can simply voice that, and that's over. The conflict's done. You voice that, you withdraw the charges, and now there's a charitable interpretation. Fourthly, you can see somebody go through the process of external repentance. You bring a charge, they acknowledge it, they offer a biblical repentance, biblical apology, and then you therefore extend forgiveness. The fifth way is that the person is in sin, they will not repent, and you raise it to the next step until you get to the final step of a church court. And then if they do not repent and you're able to be reconciled and they are ultimately removed from fellowship, then the friendship is simply over. The relationship is over unless they later repent. So the ending of a 
relationship, of a friendship. The person is covenantally dead. They are removed from your sphere as somebody you do anything except for you have necessary duties, like you have to deal with them perhaps as a, a citizen in the same state, or you might have business that you are performing and engaged in, so there's the exchange of, of goods, um, that kind of a thing. So there'd be business. If you were in a household with that person, you might have duties towards them, even though they were excommunicated. For example, you might have a believing wife and an unbelieving husband, where there's a somebody was a was professing to be a believer. They're excommunicated, and that doesn't end the marriage, uh, unless there's an unless the reason that there was excommunication was a justification for divorce, in which case there would need to be a divorce trial. But so what you have is. If it's not something that justifies divorce, but it is something that would result in excommunication through unrepentant sin, then you still have certain duties in the family ship, in the family relationship. So children, uh, servants, spouses might have ongoing duties that are necessary duties there. Um, and so those are the exceptions to people dealing with them in a common, regular, ordinary way outside of commerce or some sort of public civic duty. So those are the outlines of some of the basic principles for all conflict. And the ninth commandment, go to page two, is something that explains for us principles to apply in all conflict as well. And so the stuff on the first page is really helpful to memorize. It's really helpful to memorize. The four G's help you to think about a basic process to deal with conflict. The seven A's help you when you realize you're wrong, how to apologize. And if somebody else acknowledges they're wrong, but their apology doesn't feel proper, it gives you a way of talking about it so you have lawful things that you can claim from them about what you expect from them. And you'll find that oftentimes, you know, if somebody is doing something wrong and they, they, they say, I'm sorry, and they do something wrong and they say, I'm sorry again, it, the saying I'm sorry starts to feel really hollow, it starts to feel really weak. And so it starts to become necessary when there's repeated failings to have more explicit apologies or when something's big to have a more explicit apology because otherwise it doesn't really feel like it's resolved. Whereas going through this detail often helps you to deal with the emotional difficulty of forgiveness. So this is useful for both parties to help it to uh, seem as though it is more properly and fully resolved, especially when something's big or repeated. Okay, so then the idea of the promises of forgiveness we extend forgiveness, and sometimes we don't know what that means. And when you're the forgiven party, when you're the person who's, who's committed the wrong and then you've repented of it, sometimes you don't really know uh, what that forgiveness even looks like. And, and sometimes the person who's forgiven you can sin against you by not actually forgiving. And so this lets you know what your rights are in terms of when you've been restored, what that means. So what is it that you can say, look, you, we, we, you've forgiven me. You're, you're not acting like that. You are acting in bitterness or unforgiveness. And so this is the type of thing that helps with that. So we can, we can have a way of discussing uh, what has gone wrong and what needs to be fixed. And then furthermore, if you're not really sure if a, if a conflict is over or not, the acceptable conclusions help you to know, is this over or is this not? Is this over or is this not? Okay, so these are the exits for a conflict. So page two. The Ninth Commandment. The Ninth Commandment is very important in dealing with conflict. And in fact, the Ninth Commandment, when you look at it, it is, it is really focused on the idea of conflict resolution. So the Ninth Commandment is about truth and reputation. Truth and reputation. And it helps us to think about how to deal with conflict in a manner 
that deals with both. So the ninth commandment is, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Right? We, we think about the ninth commandment as the commandment to not lie, which is true. That, that's what that's about. But what's the worst kind of lie? The worst kind of lie is when you are lying under oath about somebody else to their harm. Lying under oath about somebody else to their harm. That is the worst kind of lie. So that being the case, we need to realize that there's a great seriousness to that. So question 144 tells us what are the duties that are required in the Ninth Commandment. And you know, the, the, big, the big Westminster Confession book that you've got has the larger catechism in it, and it's got all these scripture proofs. If I included the scripture proofs on here, uh, this document would be twice as long. Okay? The, the scripture proofs are magnificent, and if you doubt anything on here, Look that up. If you still doubt it, come and talk to me. Let's discuss that. Okay? But, so I, I want you to, to look at this, and I want you to go study those scripture proofs on any point that you think you, you, you're like, I don't know if that's biblical. Okay, go study the scripture proofs, and let's talk about it if you're still not persuaded. So 144. What are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? The duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man and the good name of our neighbor as well as our own appearing and standing for the truth and from the heart sincerely, freely, and fully speaking the truth and only the truth in matters of judgment and justice and in all things whatsoever a charitable esteem of our neighbors. Sorry, all things whatsoever. Semicolon. A, chari- a charitable esteem of our neighbors. Loving, desiring, and rejoicing in their good name. Sorrowing for and covering of their infirmities. Freely acknowledging of their gifts and graces. Defending their innocency, a ready receiving of a good report, and unwillingness to admit of an evil report concerning them. Discouraging talebearers, flatterers, and slanderers. Love and care of our own good name and defending it when need requires. Keeping of lawful promises. Studying and practicing of whatsoever things are true, honest, lovely, and of good report. Okay, so again... The principal thing here is a concern for truth. We need to preserve the truth and promote the truth between man and man. And so, this is how the knowledge of God spreads, and this is how peace spreads and justice. Okay, so the knowledge of God, justice, and peace spreads through truth. Good reputation encourages talking to people. When you're talking to somebody who you think is a liar, does that make you feel like it's worth the time to talk to them? Or does it make you go, this is a total waste of time. Every word this man is breathing is false. Right? So when you are talking to people that you think are liars, it makes it feel like a waste of time. When you are talking to people that you think are honest, it helps you to feel as though it is a worthy pursuit. So... Your own reputation is important in order to encourage other people to engage with you and to deal with conflict and to listen to you when you bring things like the gospel or what the law teaches. It also helps you to be able to do business with them and to advance your station in theirs. (coughs) So the rest of this explanation of the positive duties is an explanation of how to spread the truth and how to guard your reputation and the reputations of others. So this is the general principle. 
about spreading truth and guarding reputation. And then the rest of it is detail that explains how to do that. So, point three begins the how to do that. We need to appear for the truth. That means you're present when the truth is being attacked or when it needs to be defended. You don't hide when the truth is being opposed to avoid the fight. So imagine, for example, that there's some truth of God that is being attacked in the circle of people that we know inside of the city. And when those discussions happen, I intentionally made sure to run away and find an excuse to avoid being a part of the conversation. That would be unbecoming of an officer of the Lord Jesus Christ. And instead, what would be appropriate is to be present for it if I am aware that there is going to be an attack on some truth of Scripture, and to be ready to stand for it. So appearing for the truth, and then when you are there, uh, standing to speak in defense of the truth and to spread the truth. Not remaining silent, not failing to speak when the truth is opposed. So that idea, that sounds not peaceable. That sounds not peaceable. But without truth, peace is worthless. And so the truth must be defended. We must be willing to appear for conflicts about truth and error. And we must be willing to stand where the battle is. A soldier that is willing to stand everywhere on the battlefield except where the enemy is to be engaged is called a coward. A soldier can stand firm at every point of the line except where there is battle and fail to perform their duty. And so it is important that we stand for the truth and that we appear where the fight is. When we are standing for the truth, it is our duty to speak the truth and only the truth. And we're in matters of judgment and justice. We have to do that in everything. So what does that mean? Judgment is, is basically when you're trying to think about something as regards a person or a proposition. And justice is when you're dealing with it in terms of what somebody's going to get. Okay, so a judgment about a person or a proposition. So is this person guilty? Is this person innocent? Is this thing true? Is this thing false? Okay, that's matters of judgment. And justice is what's somebody going to get. Okay, so the consequences that befall a person. So we need to do this from the heart. In other words, we need to do it from our own inward thoughts, based upon what we actually believe, sincerely, in other words, without hypocrisy, freely. We don't have to be compulsed to it. Right? It's, it's better to do your duty when somebody threatens you. If somebody says, do your duty or else, okay, great, I'm glad you did your duty then. Okay? But it's be, it'd be better. It'd be better. Everybody with me so far? It'd be better if you did it without somebody having to compulse you to do it. Speak the truth clearly rather than obfuscation. And to speak it fully. You're not leaving out significant relevant information. All right, page three. One of the duties we have is a charitable esteem of our neighbors. So it's our duty to seek to think of and interpret our neighbors in a positive light when ambiguity exists. It is always possible to interpret actions in a negative light 
right? You can take the most positive thing ever, right? You see somebody and they're just like emptying out their wallet, blessing somebody else and doing all this thing. Like, this person is such a glory hog. Right? Like, just, you, you can interpret anything negatively. I have. I'm sure you have. Right? There are things that we have a duty to not interpret negatively. And so when we, in our sinful, evil suspicion, take everything a person does as negative, then what we are doing is we are making peace impossible. So we are called to think of the positive unless there is clear evidence to the contrary. It's a typo there. I shouldn't say theory. It should be unless there is. So we need to think about this. We, the way we interpret motives or intentions, what goal does a person have? What's the desired outcome they have? Um, what are they trying to do? We need to interpret that positively unless we have evidence for it being negative. Okay, so, so things like a inconsistency, a past evidence of hypocrisy, heresy, right, these kinds of things give basis to interpret things negatively until a person repents of those things and accepts the consequences. Now, the beliefs that are behind the words or actions that a person is doing, the, the meaning that they have in their words or actions, these are the things that we can interpret charitably or uncharitably. Seven. We are to love, desire, and rejoice in the good name of our neighbor. So loving is uh, you know, valuing. Desiring is you know, this is we're trying to, to seek for them. Uh, and rejoicing in it, we're happy when they get it. Um, if we have a duty to resist or fight a person to some audience, it's right and necessary to pass along relevant negative information for right judgment and for the good of the audience and to encourage repentance of the party being resisted. But that is not the general pattern of behavior. That is the, this is the if some exception, right? So exceptions are, are, are not the norm. They are exceptions. We are to sorrow for and cover their infirmities. So you do not want to fist pump when you see somebody do something stupid or wrong. Right? You, you, you want to, in general, your desire is to see them do what is good and wise and strong and to sorrow for it. And so the infirmities of others, their weaknesses, are things that we should look upon with a desire to strengthen them and to see reformation. We should pray for them. We should seek to bless them by not increasing other people's awareness of that weakness. We should even seek to cover their weaknesses to avoid them being seen by making honest labors to shore up their weak points and to fix problems. <coughs> Unless there's a higher priority and duty that would take the place of this covering or if there's a duty to expose. Okay, so those, uh, those exceptions. All right, so nine we are to freely acknowledge other people's gifts and graces. So um, we should be quick and happy to acknowledge natural gifts that people have, providential things that have been given to them. And we should also be quick and happy to acknowledge Holy Spirit power and church ordinances that have been granted to people. So when somebody has faith, sanctification, Holy Spirit powers, church ordinances, those are graces. And when we think about gifts, we're talking about sort of the providential or natural things. All right. Obviously, providence incorporates both, but I'm talking about not uh, providence related to the supernatural or to the, to the church. All right, 10. 
defending their innocency. So when an ill report arises about our neighbor and we believe the report is contrary to the character that has been evidenced historically from that neighbor, we want to be quick to say, I don't, I don't, that sounds odd. That sounds contrary to what I've seen. Uh, when we have evidence relating to the particular incident that defends the person, we want to present that. So we need to be quick to want to come to the defense of others. Um, obviously, we don't come to somebody's defense when we know they're not innocent. Do not come to somebody's defense when we know they're not innocent. It's our duty to raise objections. It's our duty to encourage confession of sin. And, but apart from a confession of sin, when somebody protests and says that I am innocent, we should be willing to come to their defense or at least try to push to see that they receive a just opportunity to defend themselves unless they are convicted by a lawful authority through lawful means on a lawful evidentiary basis. Okay, so let's say a lawful court uses lawful process to collect evidence and then has insufficient evidence and convicts a person. We should be happy to say that the court is wrong. If it is an unlawful court, we should not trust its verdict. If they use unjust means, unlawful means, we should not be willing to countenance that decision. So those are things that we should deal with. We should reject what has been done there and be willing to go through process anew for a person if it is an unlawful authority that's judged them, if it's unlawful means that have been used to judge them, or if the evidentiary basis was insufficient for a judgment according to the law of God. Okay, so think about this. The scriptures plainly teach that convictions should be on the basis of two or three witnesses. Okay, so that idea that you need to deal with an evidentiary basis according to the standard of God's law. Eleven, a ready receiving of a good report and unwillingness to admit of an evil report concerning them. So we should be quick to get good news and to believe it to be true about people. And we should be slow to receive bad news and to believe it about people. So you have a filtration process for bad news. And with good news, you just open it up. Just the gates are open. Come on in. That would be flipped when you have a person who is a public enemy uh, of the truth. In other words, if you've got a, a heretic, for example, who you have the demonstration that that person's a heretic, you don't just do the positive interpretation of everything. You seek to simply not focus on that and to focus on here's the thing. But you, you sound more credible, for example, if you can plainly say, yeah, that good news, that's great. And, and I believe that. And they still need to deal with this problem. Okay, so you don't really fight over, you don't quibble over the other good reports. You say, that's great. The person giving all their money to charity doesn't solve the fact that they rob a bank. In fact, if they gave somebody else's money to charity, that just was a worsening of the crime because now they can't restore it, right? So, so we want to be quick to acknowledge good reports, even about our enemies, even about heretics, but also not let that undermine the thing that needs to be repented of. 
12. We should discourage talebearers, flatterers, and slanderers. Most of you are probably going, I like a good story. Well, talebearer means gossip. Okay, so what's a gossip? A gossip is somebody who's carrying negative reports to hearers that, one, have no stake in the matter, and two, have no power, intention, or place to help in the matter. In other words, if something's a positive report, it's not gossip. If it's a negative report, it is gossip if the person you're talking to does not have a stake in the matter. They're not involved. It's not their business. And two, they have no power, intention, or place to help in the matter. They need all three. They need power to help. They need intention to help. And they need to have a place to help, a, a standing to come into the matter. Flatterers are those who carry false positive reports. <coughs> false positive reports. Slanderers are those who carry false negative reports. Okay, so a negative report is either gossip or slander unless you're talking to a person who has an interest in the matter and, oh, sorry, who has an interest in the matter or has power intention and place to help. So going to a wise counselor is not gossip. Going to a person who is a party who has a concern in the matter is not gossip. A party who has concern in the matter could be a person who witnessed the same thing. It could be a person, for example, let's say uh, there's some concern about something that I'm doing with church office. Okay. You can talk to each other about that because you all have a stake in my performance of the office. All right. 13. Love and care of our own good name and defending it when need requires. Loving our name is valuing it. Viewing is a good thing to have and to work for. Caring for it is doing the work of building up our reputation and of using wise words, wise words and actions to build it. And it also, caring for it is preserving our good name by putting off, I should say off, not of, sorry, putting off foolish words and actions. A defense is doing the work to preserve our good name against false charges or repairing action when true charges come. So, so if a true charge comes, you don't defend your name by saying, I didn't do it. Right? You confess that you did it. And then you repent and you seek to put it off. Okay? So, children, your parents say, don't do this thing, and they're going to give you spanking. Okay? When they say that, if you respond by screaming and flopping on the ground, that will not help your parents to think better of you. If, however, you say, that was wrong, Give me my stripes. Your parents will go, whoa, you are an impressive little man or little woman. And they will desire to bless you in all sorts of ways. That's true of people who are older as well, right? If you are an employee and you do badly and you own it and say, yeah, what do I need to do to make this right? You're a leader and you mess up, which I've never done. 
then you own it. If I, I mean, hypothetically, I would. <laughs> and then we realize that that is how you regain honor, is by acknowledging the failure and doing what needs to be done to repair the failure. Fourteen, keeping of lawful promises. Okay, if we make a promise that's in accordance with the law of God, then we ought to keep it, even if it seems contrary to our temporal interest, our harm. It is never our duty to keep unlawful promises. The sin in an unlawful promise is making the promise. It would be a double sin to keep an unlawful promise. Fifteen, studying and practicing of whatsoever things are true, honest, lovely, and of good report. Things that are true are things that show the presence of truth and loyalty in you. This is how to be as harmless as a dove. Honesty is things that are honest are things that help to communicate truth to others without trick or trap. This is another way of how to be as harmless as a dove. Things that are lovely are things that inspire love in others. They are beauty. They are things that are fitting. They are things that are of good order. They manifest decency, modesty, and pleasantness. This is, this might sound odd, but this is how to be as wise as a serpent. When you intelligently and wisely deploy things that encourage love in others, that is wisdom. That is good cunning. You want to encourage good relationship. And this is the skillful use of efforts to encourage that. Of, of good report. These are things that tend to cause others to speak well of you and of your God. What are things that you speak well of others for? This is, you might wonder about this. Like, well, what are things that encourage good report? And you go, well, all good works. Okay, that's true. But I'll tell you what, there are some things that are going to be more impressive than others. There are th- some things that will encourage people to think well of you and of your God more than others. And intentionally developing those opportunities to, to do things, looking for service. Imagine this. Imagine you live in a place where 90% of people are magnificent cooks. But 90% of them are terrible housekeepers. If you can be acceptably good at cooking and acceptably good at keeping house, it would draw comment to people. But they would go, wow, that, that place is in good order. Right? So if you have a thing where everybody else is falling apart there, and you can just do it with marginal competence, that's a relatively easy way to draw good report. And if there's something where your culture expects you to be particularly good at some skill, if you're particularly bad at it, it will probably draw a bad report to you because it's just kind of expected that you're going to do it. So you need to make sure that you're at least marginally competent at the stuff that would draw particularly negative attention to you. And anything where marginal competence would allow you to be viewed as impressive, there's an easy way to draw good report. So you think about that. Look what this, what do the scriptures say is something that's worthy of report. What do the scriptures praise? What do other people praise? What do you praise? These are things you can stop and think about, and you can look for ways to encourage good report. Now, you can do this in a vain, glorious way, to have, you know, have the like, 
well, thank you. Or you can do it in a way that is meant to encourage your testimony and to encourage the honoring of God. And so you need to avoid vain things, foolish things, waste of time things. And so if other people are praising stuff and it's not something God commands, that's a waste of time. That's vainglory. If it's something that people praise and it's what God commands, that is an opportunity to do something that will get praise and attention from men to the honor of God. So then you have to just check your intention. Am I doing it for man or am I doing it for God? And everybody else, when we see them doing that thing, should we interpret them as doing it for their own glory or should we charitably interpret that as being for the honor of God? The second one, if you read earlier on. Okay, so we're at the bottom of page five. We're on the stuff that's forbidden. And I have, as usual, lied to myself and thus broken the ninth commandment about what I can get through. So we're going to stop there, and I'm going to think about my life choices. Are there any comments, questions, or objections? Mr. Rodriguez. Okay, so the question is, is popular teaching that forgiveness is for you as well as for the other person, psychologically? And there's also the question of how do you deal with situations where you can't forgive, either because the person is gone or because of the fact that the person is not repented, right? Okay, so first of all, yes, forgiveness or a readiness to forgive are helpful to avoid bitterness, okay? So readiness to forgive is different from forgiveness. A readiness to forgive is to go, if this person repented, I would forgive them. And you don't sit there dwelling on the bitterness. What you do, as opposed to forgiving, is you hand it over to God. And you say, either this person has been paid for by Christ, and that is sufficient for me, because it was sufficient for God, or this person will go to hell forever because of this. And that is sufficient for me, because it's sufficient for God. So you leave it to God. Vengeance is his, and you leave it to him. If the person has simply disappeared, that's the way it is. And if the person has died, that's the way it is. And if the person is unrepentant, that's the way it is. And so your prayers about that person, about that incident, would look like this. The way you remove the weight from you. It burdens your heart. The way you remove that weight is you say, Father, this person has wronged me, and I know that I have sinned against you, and I ask that you would forgive me, and so, Father, I ask that you would either forgive this person on the basis of Christ and help me to not be burdened by this anymore, or I ask that you would bring punishment to them according to your justice, and you would help me to be satisfied in what you do there, relying upon what you will do on the Day of Judgment. 
right? And so you, you move that out, and you move it off, and you move on. And so relying upon God to either forgive them in Christ or to punish them, that should be sufficient to remove the weight. So uh, that's the psychological answer, and that's what I think theologically accurate answer is. Did I miss anything? Did I answer everything you asked for? Yes, right. So if a person were to repent, we, would, we need to be ready to forgive as opposed to a bitterly holding on to, no, I'm going to resent you forever, right? So it's, it's the readiness to forgive. You need to have the attitude of, of recognizing a readiness to forgive and then also a sufficiency of what God has done, that he has dealt with it in Christ or he will deal with it in the day of judgment. Thank you. Any other comments, questions, objections from voting members and those with speaking rights? Mr. Nye? commandment, breaking stuff with conflict resolution, you witness someone blaspheme, and like, that's an offense against God. It's also offense against you because you had to hear it. Like, how do you address that with like, another person when it's first table stuff? Yeah, I think the first table stuff, you focus on the offense against God rather than the offense against yourself. It could be secondarily brought in is a bad example. I think, I think if it's in front of other people, you can be like, that was a bad example for them. But I think to focus on it in terms of like, and this bothered me, I think it's more important to focus on this is an offense against God. And, um, you know, if somebody is in the same, if somebody professes to be a Christian at all, you should deal with that. If they profess to be, if they're, if they're a part of the same covenanted body, you should definitely deal with it. Um, if they're in the same civil sphere, you know, if the civil sphere has rejected God, then you might use it as a rebuking opportunity to show the gospel, or you might simply view it as the things that are occurring all around you all the time that are wicked, that you go, I have other good works I need to do. But you certainly have the right to rebuke it. The question is the ordinal priority of it. Right? So, so certain relationships you have a priority obligation. Other relationships you might wonder, do I have time to go and rebuke this person or not right now? And so, um, you know, if you're marching to the, to the uh, relief of some of your brothers in arms and you hear you know, some Belgian soldiers starting to curse God, you might yell as you're passing by, repent, and keep going. You know, that's about the extent that you'd have time for, right? Because otherwise you're putting other people at risk. Right? So the question of what's the other good work that you've got to go do, um, you, you've got to do that. Belgians and all their blasphemies, right? Just kidding. Thanks. Uh, one more question. So yeah. let's say I spread a positive thing about someone, someone else, when I wasn't, didn't have permission to do that. Like let's say someone said, hey, told, told me a good thing, said, don't tell anyone else, but I tell someone else. That's not gossip, but I'm still. It, it could be called gossip. If you're breaking a confidence. If you want to yeah. call that gossip, I'm fine with that. But. Uh, in general, unless there's a special reality that this thing is a secret piece of information, or it's you know their business and they you know you have reason to believe they wouldn't want to or whatever. Generally speaking, you know um, you can tell people I have a magnificent blazer, and it would be true, and so that is something that is totally fine, right? Okay. 
Great, thank you. Mr. Boyston. Thank you for your timely teaching, Pastor. Um, our flesh is weak, and there's no way to overcome that um, until we leave this realm. Uh, we can get apologies, but again, we may feel a bit of a grudge sure. when we're wrong. So what is the best way to handle that, even though we've, we've professed to the person who apologizes that we've made peace, but yet we carry within us that, that little grain sure. that we have to overcome? Great. So first, uh, when, we, when we have forgiven somebody, but then we still have bitterness inside of us or a grudge inside of us, we want to confess that to God privately. We want to ask him to forgive us for that because of the fact that he's forgiven us so much and it's so hypocritical and silly for us to not forgive much less, right? And then, so we, we need to argue with ourselves, this is stupid, I'm being stupid right now. And, and we need to argue with ourselves about the greatness of the gospel, how much we've been forgiven. And then we need to ask God to give us strength to overcome that wicked bitterness and grudge inside of us and to ask him to help us to rejoice in our salvation and in the forgiveness that we have and to allow that to overflow into forgiveness to others. And so I think that prayer and meditation on that, meditating on our own sin, meditating on the greatness of the gospel, meditating on the silliness of you know, refusing to forgive little, like reading the parable of the servants, you know, the guy who was forgiven much and the guy who's forgiven little, uh, and then you know, the way, not forgiven little, the guy that's forgiven much and the guy who owed a little bit and then the guy that was forgiven a lot chases him down and tries to extract the money out of him and then the king that forgave him you know, ultimately says, you wicked servant, like, I'm going to throw you in jail now for the tormentors. So that idea, we need, we need to meditate on that. And that will help us to root out that bitterness and we ask God to empower us in that way. Does that answer the question? Very clearly. Great. Very good. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So uh, any other comments, questions, objections for voting members of those with speaking rights? All right. Uh, Mr. Price. Thank you, Mr. Price. So that was Ephesians 4.32 that you said was a verse that's helpful to look at for ability to forgive. So Ephesians 4.32. Thank you. Mr. Marsh. Thank you for your teaching. Um, quick question on page 4 under 12a. Uh, it says, uh, uh, Tailbearers got supposed to carry true negative reports to hearers whom one have no stake in the matter, and to have no power, intention, or place to help in the matter. And then you said and at first, and then you said or, and I'm trying to figure out, is it and or? Forgive or. me. Um, the, it's not gossip if the person has a stake in the matter. It's not gossip if they have power, intention, um, and place. So it's or. So the, it's or, for number two, it's or. So if they're lacking power, but they have the intention and the place, then it's sort of like, well, I mean, talking to you is not useful. Um, if they have power, but they have no intention, and they've made that clear, then it's not going to be useful. I mean, you could try to change their intention, so that one might be more of an exception to that, right? Um, and then um, if they had power and intention, but they don't have any reasonable place, it's not, there's no lawful way for them to engage, 
and certain ex you know, extreme cases, almost anybody has plates, right? But, but there might be, um, you know, <sighs> that one. I'm, I'm going to be talking about place and order when we get to uh, Matthew 18, the processes more. I'm going to have a list out of some of that in more detail. So we'll be talking about the issue of place and who has, who's appropriate to talk to when in more detail uh, later. Okay. So I'm sorry. I'm still confused a little bit. So if, if they have no stake in the matter, um, then they still might be able to give you help. Okay. So they either have to be able to, they're, you're, you're either talking to them for help or you're talking to them because they have a joint interest okay. or a shared, con they're involved in the thing. Got it, got it, got it. So they're part of a party that it would be, okay. Um, I have one question. Sure, go for it. But that, but that one's clear? Yeah. So they're either party yeah. or, they're, or they have the ability to help. Um, so there's a question about um, hearing the defense first, and uh, Proverbs 18, 17, uh, I'm not turning this on right now, it says TSB, but uh, whoever is generous, uh, the man sounds right until the other, his opponent's able to, to cross-examine him, basically. Exactly, Matthew, for some reason, yes. Yeah, and that first person who comes is heard, it seems right until another comes to question. So often we think something's clear. It's so clear to us, but we're not thinking clearly. Mm -hmm. And until we're pressed, uh, examined, uh, we, we don't see anything but that. We often have blinders on in many areas. So should we err on the side of safety and, and uh, go inquiring instead of Accusing, even though it's clear to us, how do, how do we deal with that? Okay. Yes, I think I think you should generally err on the side of asking before accusing. Um, there's a certain degree to which, because we're relying upon the evidence of our senses and we're not God, right? That we can always be in error. So I think the if you if you think. This is very clear for this reason, that reason, the other reason, and you don't see how it's ambiguous, or you think that it's clear enough that there's a need to act for urgency or whatever, or the severity of it, you bring it. If the person then offers a defense, then you just retract. You go, I was wrong, I am sorry, I repented dust and ashes, tear your shirt. Okay, so what if we think that thing is uh, egregious, uh, a grief, to, uh, a, a, a serious grief, and. Uh, may be wrong, but we still go gently. We always go gently. So gentleness is the control of strength, the control of strength, right? So the, the grievousness of the sin and the level of responsibility of the person and the clarity of the sin are all things to be taken into account, right? So maximal aggression would go against a person of authority committing a grievous sin clearly, right? So I'm starting to think that maybe being an authority is not a great thing. No, um, so, <laughs> so I'm kidding, I'm kidding. It's a good work, and you get better rewards, so nailed it. Um, so, so that, the idea of the grievousness of it, the authority of the person, and the clarity of the failing uh, are the things that you take into account. And the degree to which any of those is mitigated, you might back off. But even a private person 
doing a very grievous thing with great clarity could be rebuked with maximal aggression. You know, some, and there are times when it would be sin to not. So, so if I see you know, a, a, a 10-year-old boy you know, about to punch you know, an 8-year-old boy or a little girl in the face, like, I need to be like, stop, and yell, and grab the people, and tear them apart, and go, what are you doing? And that's sort of appropriate, right? So I think, yes, there's a lot of detail that can be gone into, uh, but those things all have to be considered. And generally speaking, we should, we should avoid expressing aggression too much more than expressing aggression too little because of the fact that we can always add aggression, but we can't undo the level of aggression. So am I answering your question, or am I? No, that's fine. Um, a quick question about the uh, Bill's question about uh, blaspheming. So it's one thing to hear someone saying something thoughtlessly that is offensive, but they don't, they don't think anything of it, right? It's just sure. part of their vocabulary. Um, it ought not be. But what about, what do we do with their someone's <coughs> life's work, which is complete blasphemy, and addressing that, and, and you know, seeing, I mean, the root of the of that, those words that may come out. So you see that. Um, how do we deal with that? And then, uh, do we even seek that out? Because obviously, we'd be pretty busy if we were doing that. Sure. And how much? So, so what do we do there? And obviously, public figures. Sure. So, an example would be a person whose their, li their life's work is blasphemy, like a, would be a, a teacher in a cult, right? Or um, you might say, like, false prophets, like, you know, the papacy or the prophet of Mormonism or whatever, right? An imam, right? These are false prophets. Just trying to make sure that everybody has a motive who's listening to the recording to hate me, that's all. Um, so, uh, so, the. Um, the issue is there, we ought to attack those things as the priority enters. So for example, if you have people who are influenced by that, you don't have a duty to care for them by, by fighting against those errors. So the errors that are most influencing the people you have a duty to care for are the highest priority targets. Um, and eventually, we should subdue all of them. Right, so we need to be grinding to dust all of the things that raise themselves up as pretensions against the knowledge of God. And we should be doing it in an orderly way. And the orderly way is from highest importance, urgency, closeness to lowest. Right? And so um, the details of how to choose the targets could be talked about for a long time. But those things, there's, there's urgency of danger or of benefit. There's the importance of the benefit or of the harm. And then there's the closeness of the benefit or the harm. And those are things that I think are taken into account. And the closeness is principally determined by the covenant spheres, individual, household, church, and state, and from closer to farther in the church and state. And also in the family, because extended family is less of a priority than immediate family. So those would be sort of the, the systems that you use to evaluate um, the prioritization of, of target. Thank you. I, I think one of the concerns there would be uh, people who are, may have a tendency to legalistically go over, uh, um, go about, you know, trying to correct 
with specific words coming out of others, whereas not understanding the, what you're just talking about. Sure. So, so when there's a pattern of words that the only times we're the only times we're authorized to deal with patterns of words is when there's a an authority, a lawful authority to impose it. So, um, the doctrine of the Trinity was worked through at Nicaea in a way where it might have been lawful to previously say that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have a similar substance in the past. But once it was determined that saying they have the same substance is the, the way of fighting the ambiguity of heresy, where people wanted to say that the Father's God, the Son's not, maybe the Spirit is. You know, what, Once it's clear that that's an ambiguity that's used for heresy, and a lawful authority has declared that sort of a, you know, a foxhole for the enemy to hide in, there becomes an obligation to resist that. Right? So I think forms of words that are not imposed by a lawful church council, for example, or you know, somebody who's an authority that has lawful ability to impose them on the people under them, that there should not be a, a, a wrangling over words that becomes sort of a, a sinful, divisive wrangling over words. And that's actually exactly what I think the scriptures are warning against, is trying to impose a pattern of words um, before it's been worked through in some sort of public judicatory process. And so we are required to seek to understand the other party and to determine if what they're saying is wrong or not. So we have the duty of working through things in terms of the charitable interpretation. And then we can seek to work through things like with a church court to have a pattern of words that would be acceptable thereafter. And so one of the common examples that I would give is, I think it's unhelpful to talk about faith being three parts, right? So if somebody says the third part is just assurance or just not having to do anything else or applying it to yourself, like, I'm going to go fine. I think you're making a mistake in how to communicate clearly, but I don't think that's heresy. But if they add something other than content to be believed, I'm going to say that's heresy, right? And so uh, Robert Godfrey is an example of a guy who used the three-part definition, but was not a heretic. He's not a heretic. He's still alive. Uh, R.C. Sproul was a person who explained that in a non-heretical way. Um, and so, but there are many other people who, you know, they smuggle in works or you know whatever else into that third part. And so you have to. If that's a difficulty of our time that we have to work through. Um, and so that's that's an example. Okay. Um, we talked about harms. Um, what about uh, reparations for? There could be psychological harms. There could be emotional harms. How do you deal with those? Um, so psychological harms are more like time. I think is more of a of a thing. And I think that. Um, Reputational harms are things that are dealt with by clearing it up, and psychological harm is dealt with with the asking for forgiveness. And that's supposed to help to remove some of it. It obviously can't take away the suffering, but we look to the fact that God has done it um, and that it's for our good. And so we have an obligation, I think, to, to trust in God for that peace and that the external and temporal things um, are the things that are, that are restored. But you know, time itself can be a cost that if somebody is maliciously and without basis doing something, you know, sort of like attorney's fees. It's sort of the way of dealing with that in, in our kind of modern thing. But time, if you injure somebody, you need, to re you need to pay for their injury and for the time lost. Those can be similar types of things that can be dealt with when a person is maliciously bringing something that is, um, that is a frivolous suit. And one of the ways you would determine that is by if it's been worked through once and there's been a captured thing and then somebody keeps bringing it, that would be an example of a frivolous waste of time if there's strong evidence you know, that's already been dealt with and there's clarity on it. So, speaking of time, 
I have more questions. Sure. I don't know if they should wait till after dinner or is it appropriate. Sure. We we can continue. We can we can continue them at the at the uh, fellowship meal, um, and uh, and so that would be I think a good way of dealing with that. Um, if there's desire, I could keep keep talking about the subject. 